Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. And here we are for a new episode of Redefining Security here on ITSP Magazine. And uh, you're all very welcome to, to partake in this conversation. Hopefully you join us online uh, through social media. This is a topic I think uh, will pique the interest of many. Uh, It's a a program or a project. uh, Maybe our guests will will clarify that for us when we get into this. That takes a while to put together. It comes out every couple, three years. I think it was a a four-year run this time around uh, between the last publication. And it's the OWASP Top 10 and uh, it gets used properly for many things, misused in other ways. Uh, I know companies use it to help strategize and put programs together. Vendors use it to uh, sell their wares and services. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of it. I have joining me as, uh, as my guest co-host, Diana Kelly. And uh, we also have Andrew Vanderstock and Nabil Hanan. Uh, thank you all for being part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And uh, Diana, I'm, I'm going to lean on you to help drive this conversation, but also participate uh, for those who don't know you as uh, a member of the ITSP Magazine podcast family. Uh, a few words about what you're up to and uh, your interest in this topic, OWASP Top 10. Yeah, so um, I've been in the field for over 30 years, and I started out as a network guy. And I was just, that was it. It was all about the networks and routers and switchers and building, you know, global things. And and it wasn't until I had been on the job for, I think, about seven or eight years that I started to realize that it didn't matter what I did down at layer one, two, and three, that if layer seven wasn't secured, all bets were off. So that's when I really pivoted because I realized that in order to be able to actually be a whole security person that I had to be able to understand what was going on. I'm not by no means a developer, but uh, you know, got really uh, into what's going on at, at Layer 7, obviously. And thank goodness for the OWASP Top 10 because it really helped us. People were first looking at application security and, and other people were realizing we got to protect Layer 7. There just wasn't a lot of great guidance. So it's just been such a welcome you know, guide, you know, lodestar guide, guiding you know, force in the industry to help people really focus on what needs to matter, uh, what to look at. And that's why it's so wonderful to see it continue to get updated. And this, it's, just, it's always really exciting to see the new updates, to see you know, how we're helping to focus people in the, the right areas and also to shine the light on where the real problems are and where the attackers are exploiting our systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to me, it's very actionable. And to use the word guidance, uh, Diana, and uh, I think it brings consistency as well in terms of terminology and how, how folks can look at things. And uh, we're going to get into some of that first, though. Nabil, uh, what are you up to? What are you, uh, why are you interested in this topic? Absolutely. So I work as a managing director at NetSpy. And I oversee our strategic advisory services uh, offerings um, as a lead, but I also provide overall strategy and guidance to all of our consulting services across the board um, with a heavy focus on the application security side. I I come from a background of application security, been in this space consulting um, 
primarily focused on a lot of the financial services institutions, the largest ones in the U.S. and globally, uh, for the last 14 plus years or so now. Uh, before that, I used to be a software developer, and I've written a lot of insecure code in my lifetime. Uh, that was before I had learned more and more about application security. And before that, I used to work as a product manager for uh, a company called Research in Motion, which is more popularly known as uh, BlackBerry today. Mm-hmm. A long, long history there. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have many stories to tell. Maybe we'll have you on for a different conversation for some of those things. Uh, and I want to thank you, Nabil, because it was a blog post that you put together. I think, I think it was you that put the, put the blog post together that uh, prompted this conversation. And uh, the man behind the myth, <laughs> the project, Andrew Vanderstock. Uh, thanks for being on this. A uh, few words about yourself, uh, your role in this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe as you wrap that, kind of a history of the OWASP top 10. Sure. So yeah, uh, I've been around OWASP for the Pretty much, yeah, in fact, the last 20 years, I actually joined OWASP a couple of months after it got going and uh, our 20th anniversary of this year. Um, I got into application security uh, at a financial institution. They definitely drove the early days of uh, application security. Um, I used uh, the predecessor to ISO 17799 to come up with first principles of what became the developer guide. there was a lot of research and development back then, and as soon as you realized something was possible, everything had it. And so driving awareness was a key um, point of both the earliest project, that, you know, was, um, uh, the Open Web Application Security Project, which is I'm now the executive director of, but also um, when Jeff Williams and Dave Wickers created the very, very, very first version of the OS Top 10 back in 2003. Um, so it's nearly 20 years old too. And um, so long story short, I was involved in the 2007 version. Um, and uh, after that, I realized that telling people what not to do may not be necessarily the best way of going forward. So I started working on the application security verification standard, which is yet another um, piece of work that Jeff Williams started uh, with Mike Babersky. They also came to the same conclusion. Telling people what to do is less work. And I hope that that's one of the, the ongoing messages that people get from this. The OS Top 10 is a great starter and awareness piece, but it is not a good developer standard, but it is a really good way of getting developers interested in where to go next. It, it's sort of like that CS101 class um, at the first year of university. You need to have that CS101 class to be able to go on to do more. Um, the ASVS is like level 203, 204, uh, you know, le- you know, more or less, it's got a great deal of depth, but we're talk- here to talk about the OS Top 10. So long story short, this is like the, um, we had a 2003, 2004, which is the first one that most people knew about, um, 2007, 2010, 2013, 2017, which is when I took it over again uh, and added my co-leads, uh, uh, Brian Glass, uh, Neil Smithline and Torsten Giggler. Brian actually was one of the last ones to be added. Fun story. He actually provided constructive feedback and because of that his data analysis and his data scientist background actually showed us the error of our ways and uh, that actually directly influenced some of the changes in the 2020 version or 2021 version so um, i encourage everyone who gets into these sort of projects don't think you can do it by yourself you need other minds as well and i'm really thankful for my co-leads Go for it, Diane. I'm really curious if you could, Andrew, if you could deep dive a little bit into how that analysis and how looking at the data differently did change 2017 to 2021. Yeah, so um, Dave Wickers was starting the 2017 version and he came up with the release candidate as he foresaw it uh, in the standard way, the way that we'd actually been doing it since the very word go. And uh, he, it, seemed to be a surprise to the community that that's how it came up but what the community didn't realize is that obviously Dave is a practitioner and he has lots of access to data and he had quite a bit of data um, around 10,000 apps worth of data and so his analysis was sort of more or less correct but the community wasn't ready for that 
and so there was a big uproar and Dave was just over it. Um, you know, he and Jeff had actually invested a lot of time and energy and money into OWASP um, and he was just over it. So he said, look, Andrew, do you want to look after it? And I said, um, moving countries? Oh, yeah, why not? So I moved countries and started the OWASP top 10 and my first act was to find people to help and um, so I picked up um, Neil and Torsten because Torsten had been the translator for German since 2004 and I'm surprised he wasn't a co-lead at that point. Um, I would have made him a co-lead much earlier if I'd known. But Brian wrote a three-part blog analyzing the data that we had and we had a, a data on around a hundred and something thousand apps at that point. So it's one of the largest data sets in existence. And he just showed us that what we'd actually said was sort of correct, but the way that you need to analyze it is actually to look at the um, more or less the incidence of these things happening because we're a risk-based thing. So we're not actually saying this is how much money people have lost, which is, you know, that sort of impact. Um, so if you go to the breach DBs, you look at the largest breaches in the world and look at the root causes of that. They're still in the oldest top 10, but they're not number one. But so to some people, the oldest top 10 is all wrong. But the reality is there are things that are far more likely and you should get rid of them just because it's good hygiene. And the way I've always looked at the OS top 10 is it's the bare minimum you need to do to avoid negligence. And you need to do all 10. It is as simple as that. You can't get away from not doing it. It is, there is no other way. So it doesn't actually matter the order, but for some people it really does. Some mm -hmm. people who have yeah. a lot of marketing behind the OS top 10 <laughs> Their thing may only be one of them, and that it's in their interest to make sure it's number one. Yeah. And that's actually a bit of a problem. So Brian brought actual academic rigor in the three-part blog series that initially when I first read it, I was going, dude, this is horrible. You're being horrible to me. And then I read it and read it and read it, and I was just going, he's actually got a really good point. And so we invited him on, and oh, my goodness, I am so glad. Because now we've got data on 515,000 apps. It again, with the largest data set in existence. It, it, at this point, you can disagree with us, but you either need to bring a bigger data set that says something very different, or you have to have better analysis like Brian did. And mm. you're competing against a tenured professor who's a data scientist. Good luck. Nabil, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, I want I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of this point of does it really matter the order, right? You really need to look at all this stuff. Mm. And I know we can we can look at or listen to some of the jokes of it's it's on the top ten list over and over and over. Kind of to Andrew's point. Um, it, so what? It, it's there. How how do we take action with some of this? So what are some of the things perhaps that you've seen on the list that continue to be on the list that you're wondering companies aren't addressing this because of X, Y, or Z? What are some of the challenges companies face? I guess is really the question. So my, pers like my perspective on the OWASP top 10 is that I don't perceive it as a ranking. I perceive it as a list or a data set of items that people need to learn about or people need to be conscious of as part of software development or if they're just interested in learning about cybersecurity and in particular, in this case, application security. The 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 relevance or the importance or the ranking of these items are going to have to vary from business to business, to organization to organization, or in many cases, even application to application. So trying to put together a universal list and ranking of vulnerabilities, or even in this case, more like categories of vulnerabilities in a prioritization format is really challenging. So Andrew and his team, they're putting in a best effort based on data that's available to them to, to make that ranking and prioritization. But when you're looking at it from a practical implementation perspective for different organizations, looking at it as a ranking and saying, well, OWASP told me that this is number one, so I'm going to start with number one, may not always make sense. So you have to determine as a business, what are the risks that are important to you and your software, and how are you going to approach it? The way I think about it, and I'll use some uh, analogies that are very close to heart to all of us today, is, you know, inoculations. 
right? When you have a problem, there may be 10 different diseases out there in the world that are all spreading, but you want to start with the one that's probably going to cost the most damage or spread the most or is the scariest and so on. You don't start inoculating against every single disease out there all at the same time. You focus on the one that's most important to you. Similarly, I also often use an analogy that's medical. That is when you have um, a trauma patient that shows up in the ER, they don't start addressing every single injury or every single health problem that they have. They focus on what they need to focus on to keep them alive first. So as organizations, what I tell uh, a lot of our clients and in discussions is that let's start by picking one to two things that are really important to you and make sure that you then put the effort in and the marketing in internally to educate your developers on that. And then figure out if you can inoculate those vulnerabilities somehow. It may be as simple as education, so the developers know how to prevent it, or there are some companies that have really done well in this and use technology to prevent vulnerabilities altogether, especially things like injection vulnerabilities, right? The cross-site scriptings of the world, the SQL injections of the world. They put protections into the software framework that their developers have to use to build systems. So they take away the ability of developers to create those vulnerabilities in the first place, as long as they're enforcing that they use those um, secure coding platforms and architectures in their development process. So that's kind of my perspective, if that helps answer the question. And, and Andrew and maybe Diana has something to, to jump in here as well, but uh, I'm wondering in terms of audience for this, um, we, we did an episode yesterday where we were talking about the number of information security practices within a within an organization from you have security operations and cloud security and network security endpoints and it goes on and on and on. Application security may or may not fit in there. Um, but, but how does that connect to engineers and, and DevOps and, and, and app folks that may or may not be security oriented and how does it speak to the security people that may not have an app view of things? So just the reality is it's sort of like people getting out of university uh, for an engineering course and not learning about resilience, environmental factors, or even just building loads. I mean, essentially, if you can't build something securely or a bridge that won't fall over in the wind, uh, you shouldn't be practicing. So one of the things is that I do believe that developers don't need to, like builders, builders don't need to be engineers, but there needs to be an engineer that can consult. So if you're using the building um, analogy and all analogies, when you push them hard enough, fall down. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I do believe that we need to be more involved in the actual building of the software. We can't review our way to a secure application. We can't review our way into building a bridge that won't fall down. You can actually test concrete to make sure it's good um, and has the right sort of properties but that doesn't make it a, a safe bridge. It just means the concrete was good. That's the problem that we've got is that our background has been this desk check type of mentality that we're auditors in some way. Uh, we're not auditors. Unless you're a CPA and you've actually got that background in auditing as an accountant, you are not eligible to call yourself an auditor and we shouldn't pretend to be such. But what we can do is say, oh, we know about application security. We know how to help build secure apps. And so the scalability part of it, because then we're starting to say, well, we need to be you know, part of the team that builds the app. Well, many of the places that I've done work at have got like over 1,000, 1,500 apps. Does that mean that you need 1,500 plus security people? They don't, don't exist. So how do you do it? And I think, honestly, application security engineering needs to mature, grow up, and become agile. We have to stop saying no. We have to say this is how you do it better. And I think Nabil had a really good point there about here are the safer ways of doing it and prepare those and test them and make sure that they're actually good. A lot of the times, you know, many people in our industry, they hand wave and say, you know what, input validation is the entire cure to cross-site scripting. Well, 10 years later, we found out that it's probably just simply have auto-escaping output encoding. So view and react are the number one reasons why cross-site scripting is no longer its own thing in the OS top 10. And it's not because people said, 
I want to have a secure framework. It said, I want to have a fantastic templater. So they use Vue and React, and they automatically don't have cross-site scripting. It's a fantastic win-win for everyone. That's the sort of wins that we need throughout the OS Top 10. We need to provide that secure paved road. We need to shift all the way through, not just left, but all the way through the development process. You know, it, it's funny that you say that about cross-site scripting because, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly the almost 20 years ago uh, conversation, but I was speaking to one of the most well-known names in application security after the first or the second OWASP Top 10 came out. And he quipped, eh, it should be the OWASP Top 4 because really it's all input validation if you, could, if you conflate it. But that kind of draws into something that's new in 2021 that I was really super excited to see, which was the introduction of insecure design. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, Andrew, if you could start us off talking a little bit about why, because I think OWASP has kind of stayed away from root cause and was really focused on, you know, specific tactical and, and insecure design is, is root cause. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then Nabil, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how companies could actually bring forward secure design to, mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. And that is one of the hugest changes. Um, before the OWASP top 10 titles were a mixture of symptoms, outcomes yeah. and root causes. We've made them all the root causes now, and that meant that some things got bucketed differently, and that's an, an important um, distinction to make about the 2021 version, and that's why some things did move. Um, but it was necessary because the reality is insecure design is the root of all evil, and quite frankly, um, as we start to see the, the number of injection patterns, which is why you know injections is still there, uh, the injection pattern itself is evil. It's never going away unless people realize that from a design point of view that I don't want to do that anymore. Um, so insecure design is definitely not a bucket. It's not saying everything that we find in a, um, a penetration test that isn't one of the other nine, that's where it goes. That's not it. It's literally along the design of, um, did you actually um, threat model or come up with a uh, protection? So essentially, is the control present? Is it effective? And is it in use? So these are the things that is different about insecure design. And you're absolutely right. OWASP has traditionally not really touched on architecture or design because we've always looked at it from the point of view of what could realistically a security professional do in a report. But if you tell someone you need to start again because you've forgotten to do something so fundamental as threat modeling or so fundamental as saying you don't have access control, yeah, that's a bit of a problem. Um, so, I mean, to give you an idea, a few years ago, uh, about seven or eight years ago, I did a, a pen test of a very big logistic software. It's used by everybody. It's created by a very large firm. And I always concentrated on access control. I spent about a third of my time doing pen tests or code reviews looking at it. And I was able to act as an administrator without being logged in. This is an app that would have been tested by governments time and time and time and time again over its 20-year history. And I was the first person to come up with the fact you could act as an administrator without being logged in. Wow. That, that, yeah. is, what, that is what A4 is for, insecure design, yeah. because they forgot to put something really fundamental in. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and Nabil. The, the reason I really love the fact that insecure design is finally in the OWASP top 10 yeah. is because I've been talking about how that's a big part of what OWASP top 10 has been missing because in, in actual practical experience, whenever we've done security assessments, we would bucket vulnerabilities into two categories. One is what we would call security bugs, which are things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting. They're typically things you can go fix by changing a couple lines of code for that specific instance and so on. And then the other bucket is uh, security flaws, which are at the design level. And those are things you cannot just go change one or two lines of code. You actually have to re-architect how you design something in order to go fix it. Um, the example I, I love, uh, there's a picture, I think, where they have a, a swinging gate that stops someone from getting into a parking lot. But around that gate, there is no fence. So mm -hmm. a car could just drive around and go in there. That's a design flaw. Now, if you went and analyzed that gate, you would see that, yes, it functions correctly. It goes up and down. Does the card reader or, or the mechanism that makes it go up and down work? Yes, that's secure. 
but unless you look from the actual implementation and deployment of that whole system, you're not going to find that in secure design. So similarly, it requires people to now think of systems more critically, but also look at systems as a whole and understand how is the system actually deployed? Where am I assigning the relevant trust boundaries? Where are my assets in the system? Do I have the right controls that protect my assets from other assets or other systems when the trust boundary is crossed and, and so on and so forth? Uh, Andrew and I have done many uh, architecture analysis and, and design reviews in our lifetime. So um, I'm sure there are many examples we could come up with. But the bottom line is the empirical data shows that half the vulnerabilities identified are typically flaws and the other half are bugs. Mm -hmm. And until now, the OWASP top 10 was pretty much a list of all things that were essentially bugs. But with in, in the introduction of insecure design, now we can capture the other 50% of issues within this bucket. And at least it's also educating the industry that you cannot just rely on a pen test or a checklist of things to go find things. Or you can't just rely on static analysis, dynamic analysis, I asked to find everything. Mm -hmm there does require some analysis done by a human who's looking at the system critically and trying to figure out how do you actually break the design? Just like the bridge example, Andrew explained, if you build a bridge and don't factor in that there may be wind going across the bridge, that's probably not the right way to approach the problem. The other example I really like is you don't go and see a car manufacturing plant and if at the end of the manufacturing process, the car has a bunch of dings and scratches on it, they don't just keep making cars and fix the dings and scratches after the car has been manufactured. They stop, look at the whole process, figure out the root cause, figure out how to design the system so that the car does not have dings and scratches, and then they continue production. It's a similar concept that we have to take from the, the what I call the physical engineering uh, aspects and apply them to software. And I think historically, and even today, we probably don't do a good enough job, even in our computer science or software engineering classes, teaching students about failures that have happened and what they need to be conscious of. We still focus yeah. on teaching them how to build functionality without teaching them how to build in security. Yeah, and it's a, I wanna, I wanna uh, look to the gate example you brought in the bill, an item that went from spot five to spot one is broken access control, right? Which is that gate scenario. So yes, you may, might, may not even have access control factored in, but if you do, it's broken in some way. And, and Andrew, I want to get your perspective on that. Is, it, is that a, a change in more people are actually putting in access controls and they're now broken? Or is it a factor of... We have microservices and cloud services and APIs and microservices and, all, and that environment is changing to where that's exposed. Machine machine stuff is exposing it more. What, what's the driver for that move? So a lot of it is actually to do with the, um, the fact that some of the top items in the past were easily found through grep. This is not easily found. And, but as time goes on and um, we see fewer and fewer injection patterns, um, people are still actually searching for the things that are possible for them to test. And access control is definitely one of them, so we're seeing more. But also the shift to serverless computing and the shift to APIs, we're seeing a lot of old Java, old code that is actually never designed to be on the internet is now fronted by an XML gateway or a, a thin shim of, lay, of code. And, you know, they expect to talk to this middleware server, but instead they're talking to the internet. And all of a sudden, the assumptions that were made in like 2001 to 2005 are no longer true. And so it's more easily found um, as the architectures change, but the actual uh, controls and the missing design element there have uh, not been upgraded to suit as well. One of our common friends, uh, Dr. Gary McGraw, actually, in his book, uh, Software Security, uh, he has this concept that he calls the trinity of trouble. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that concept. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's it stayed with me for a long time. The three things are connectivity, complexity, and reusability. So if you think about connectivity, everything is getting interconnected in ways that they were either never intended to 
or they're just getting more and more complex because we now are not only designing software for computers, we're designing it for handheld devices, for IoT devices, and so on. So that's changing and that's build, bringing in interconnectivity, which means software needs to be more versatile. And as a result, it goes to point two where complexity is being added because systems are now being built you know, with microservices, APIs, and smaller chunks that eventually get stitched together to make something work. And that leads to the other challenge we have, which is the third one of reusability, you know, the whole concept of object-oriented programming is to build something once so you don't have to keep building it over and over again. But the problem you have with that is someone may end up using something, as Andrew ex um, explained, that was intended for one thing, but gets used to do something that was never intended. Simple example would be, you know, open source code, or even the one I like to use is random number generators. Someone may have built a random number generator and published it as open source that they're using it for, I don't know, some games for children that are five and under. But then someone who may be building a medical device or maybe building a casino game decides to use a random number generator that isn't truly, you know, statistically random. And mm -hmm. that ends up having different consequences in the long run. So the, the concept of Trinity of Trouble is something I really like. But that, I think, is also what leads to the problem we have around broken access control, because systems are getting so much more complex, they're getting so much more interconnected, and they're reusing so much more code because yeah. of the popularity of open source software. Yeah. There's also this, this thought that open source software must be secure because so many eyes are seeing it at the same time, but that's definitely not true, and we all know that. And if someone doesn't believe that, I would love to talk to them and, and get their perspective. But all of those three factors, I think, is what's leading to this broken access control issue. And that's why it's gaining more and more popularity. Great points. You know, another one that's so something that was new this year was the software and data integrity failures. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that intersects really well with what's going on in the CICD shift left kind of mindset. So, Andrew, what was the thinking and what, what, why is this a new category? And so what does it mean? the categories are actually driven a lot by the bucketing that we did. And so one of the areas that um, people can definitely um, argue with us is that we incorrectly bucketed um, the change between the earlier versions like we had data for everything pretty much post 2003 we've always shoved a couple of things in for example crsf was chucked in by me mm -hmm. uh, because 100 percent of apps had it there was no data for it but i thought you know what we, we better get on top of this um, so this one essentially we stopped asking for 43 CWEs. So if you think about the OS Top 10 2017 has been the OS Top 43, uh, we've now got the OS Top 700. Um, so we've received a lot of different data and we had to figure out how does this actually map to previous versions? And when we started looking at the actual data incidence rate, we were actually very concerned that um, some of these things were sort of categories. And so for those who are unfamiliar with the common weakness enumeration, the CWEs, uh, it's absolutely the wrong way to describe software vulnerabilities. Weaknesses are a very negative term, yet what we're looking mm. for is how did the things get designed properly? And so CWEs, like for example, one of the categories has zero CVEs, which is the actual someone found a flaw and was able to exploit it. Um, other categories that we have are self-referential back to the OS top 10, and mm. we're the only thing in the CWE for that particular issue. So this is a problem because people report it because, well, it's it's got a CWE, but it's, it's us. So um, that's where it starts to break down, and I, I think CWE is, in, is wrong. So there is a team working on the thing called the Common Requirements Enumeration. I will get to the answer to your question in a tick. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of mapping that people have to do because of this very fuzzy what went wrong. There's over 1,200 of them. CRE were very unlikely to break two or 300. 
And it means you can map every single standard from NIST through ISO, through OWASP, through uh, everything can be mapped to CRE very simply. And then if someone comes along with a new thing, like PCI DSS version 4 or whatever the case may be, you can just really map it and see what you're already doing so you don't have to do it again. Uh, I think CRE has a huge future. What this actually means is <laughs> when we bucketed the CWEs for insecure, um, like, you know, uh, integrity was it was sort of this nebulous thing this is probably the weakest one in the entire OS top 10 because it covers everything from you don't have good controls over your data at rest you also don't have good controls mm -hmm. over data in transit you don't have good controls over data in processing so you start to look at these CWEs that are all different but they're all about well people could change things and so it is a bit nebulous. This is the one that I have the most concerns about from the new category point of view. It is very important because, like, for example, if you're a bank and you can't keep a good, accurate trail of people's balances, you're going to go out of business. So right. is that important? Yes, it is important. And we see the CWEs occurring frequently enough that when we bucketed them together, this is where it came from. But I do have concerns that we actually have something that covers all three stages of processing, storage, transmission, and processing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do. Uh, I think in 2024 we might see some refinement here. Interesting. And and definitely different from the encryption, which is number two, right? Just because yeah, encrypted it doesn't mean yeah. it maintains integrity. And I want to. I don't. I don't know if anybody has any any one thing in particular you want to go to, but one thing that sticks out to me is kind of the the visibility of what's going on, and that's number nine up from ten in the previous, which is logging. Yeah, and broken logs, and so yeah, thoughts from both of you on the importance of that and and what it means as part of the OWASP top ten. So I'll just jump in real briefly. So what happened here is that in two thousand and seventeen, um, we'd always chuck things in like the CRSF example I told you before, based around what we knew was coming up, but we decided to let the community tell us what it should be, and we gave them a vote. Um, so we had a nomination period, what should be there, and then we got them to vote on what the order would be. Some of it made it in by themselves, like XXE, and this time SSRF. Uh, but insecure logging and monitoring is like the... Um, if you're telling me that in this day and age that you don't want to look at logs to find out if you're being breached, uh, I think you're wrong. And so I'm really glad that it's still there, but it is actually really hard to pen test. You actually have to do what auditors do, which is ask for information from the people, I was going really hard at your systems. Did you notice me? And yeah. what would you have done if you had noticed me in real life and you knew that it wasn't a pen test? Um, that is a very qualitative um, item. And I'm glad it got back in by itself because if you look at the various on data breach reports going back, back in the mid 2000s, it was over 365 days before someone else, not you, someone else would tell you you've been breached. Mm -hmm. And now it's down to around two days. And it's because of this. So I am really glad that we're starting to get to a position where people can identify their own breaches and deal with it. And additionally to that, um, you know, my thoughts are logging is something that I feel we've defined pretty clearly when and what you need to log in order to be able to detect and monitor vulnerabilities and breaches correctly. So organizations should be able to adopt those best practices and really build systems that are naturally resilient or naturally have the ability to notify someone when they see some behavior that is not very kosher. But it's it still amazes me that this hasn't gone away from the OWASP top 10 because I was under the impression that this would go away because the concepts are well understood, well documented, well published on, on how to approach this problem. It's the one thing you had asked to Sean earlier was, do I have any things that I'm surprised by that are still here? And I do, which is that if you look at some of the common things that we still find today, SQL injection, cross-site scripting, and so on, they've been around and published and talked about for decades now. So why is it that we're still failing to eradicate those types of issues? And these issues are not benign, you know, if they're identified in the wild, they can have really, really adverse damage um, to the organization's data, privacy, et cetera, and so on. So that's a problem that I'm actually surprised by, that it's still around. And 
every time we find one of those issues in the client system, we are still surprised, we're still excited, and you know, we tell the client about it and tell them how to fix it. But I'm still surprised that we haven't been able to come up with a way to systemically uh, eradicate some of these issues. And then the last comment I'll make for you, Sean, you said something that, I, that really resonated with me was that encryption is not the same as data integrity. That being said, you will be surprised how often I meet people that think because something isn't encrypted that the in integrity of that is staying intact. And that's definitely not the case, but we run into that situation all the time. And we typically find those by doing design reviews. So tying it back to the, the insecure design co conversation we had earlier, it takes the design reviews for us to really understand when there's a flaw where people are thinking that just because they encrypted something that the integrity of that's staying intact. I'm sort of curious, Nabil, about something you were just saying, you know, about, you know, why are we still seeing this? And this is a question I ask a lot, uh, you know, why do we see some of these really sort of simple, we know how to validate input, we know how to stop cross-site scripting. Why, it, you know, some of these complex design flaws, actually you realize that they're really, until you've got a lot of people looking over the application and thinking in a lot of different ways and doing again, very deep threat modeling, some of the design flaws aren't as apparent, but cross-site scripting, input validation. So I'm curious, Nabil and, and Andrew too, why, why are we still seeing this? What is it that we're, we, we're not doing as a community? I think um, the leadership who manage um, software development, they need to understand that if you actually embrace security and if you embrace security concepts as part of your development, you actually end up saving money in the long run. So I like to yeah. look at businesses and think about how does this business make money or how does my business make money? And there are studies that have shown that secure software is actually better from an overall quality perspective as well, and usually better from a design perspective as well. So until we have um, software development leadership that embrace security, and there isn't a constant battle of, oh, the security team is against us and they're trying to slow down our development, going back to the CICD conversation, Diana, that you brought up earlier, right? That if we can integrate mini gates in the CICD process, but then have the gates all throughout the SDLC in the appropriate places that look for certain vulnerabilities and stop software from going forward, that can over time condition developers to be aware of vulnerabilities that they're introducing, catching them early on, learning about them and fixing them as long as they treat it as part of their normal software development hygiene. And um, I think it was Jim Routh who's published studies where he worked with his CFO um, and he, he talked about how when you do security and build security into the development process in the long run, you're actually saving cost of software development because the level of effort to fix a vulnerability once it's already in the software and detected much later in the SDLC is exponentially more expensive than catching it at the point when it's being created and fixing it and moving on. Barry Bohm's law lives, yeah, mm. <laughs> Andrew. So I really do think the security folks need to um, get to more of the aircraft type model where we look at the root causes and start to think about, well, what stops planes falling out of the sky? And as things get better and better, um, we, have invested in the air in the aerospace industry a lot into these root cause analysis and get rid of the problems. Our analogy here is frameworks. We need to basically say to people, please use React, please use Vue. If you use something else, you're going to get a lot of extra um, like reviews. Um, if you've got something that is known to be insecure, you may not go live. We need to basically say, if you choose React or Vue, you will be able to go live a lot quicker, plus it's quicker and faster for you, plus it's cheaper. Um, and so if we provide this little bit of proactive effort and say to folks, computers, eh? Um, but the other part of it is, is that, and I really do think that this is actually one of the important things that's different from almost everything else we do. There's no liability in the software industry at all. That's crap. How do we have no warranties? How do we have something that says there is no consequences for you to release something that's so terrible and insecure? 
How did we get to here? And the problem is, is that there's no other industry on the planet that has that. We need to change it. I think, honestly, lawmakers need to actually say that lack of liability is illegal. And that would change the industry overnight and force everybody, every business to start thinking about what are my best frameworks? What should I be using? And you'd be starting to see people get rid of the old stuff much more rapidly. But until that lack of viability goes away, there's no financial or business risk reason for a board to get concerned about this old, awful software that's just going to stay there forever unless something changes. So, Andrew, who's going to become the NTSB for software? <laughs> well, at the moment, it looks... In the United States, which I think many of our listeners might come from, um, there is um, a lot of work coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and in particular, um, a lot of it is driven from federal agency regulations. And I can see that as being a driving factor in the current situation. Um, I'm doing a lot of work with software assurance at NIST. Um, but also, I think, you know, um, that in itself isn't necessarily the entire answer. Um, regulations that sort of bake in 2020 editions of thought leadership have to evolve. I don't know that we're at an industry point yet where we can say this is the correct way. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think some good, good nuggets in there. I want to close with one question to each of you, and it's the same but different question. Nabil, the, the first one, well, the question is, how to get started with the OWASP top 10 and the different flavors are in the bill to you first, somebody fresh, new, the reading, the 2021 20, version for the first time, haven't looked at any others. How do they take it? And then Andrew to you, it's somebody has been following it for, for many revisions. Now, what do they need to do to really em embrace and digest the differences from this year compared to the previous ones? So Nabil, you first. So the biggest thing that I always focus on is education. And the more we educate people on understanding security concepts, the better. And, you know, I was just attending a conference for the last four days. You'll be shocked at how many teenagers and, and young folks I met who are interested in application security and pen testing. And they come up to me and say, well, how yeah. do I start? And I've consistently pointed them to the OWASP website and the OWASP top 10 and said, if you're going to start, start with these 10 things and learn them as well as you can. And from there, you will naturally figure out what else you need to learn. And secondly, for organizations who are trying to prevent vulnerabilities, what I tell them is start small, don't chew off more than you can actually swallow. So start with one, maybe two vulnerabilities. OWASP top 10 is a great place to start. If you don't know where you want to start, maybe pick two out of the top 10 that are most applicable to your business and start there and figure out how you can manage that risk and what efforts you're going to put in to ensure that your organization is free of those vulnerabilities. And as you make progress there, expand that window and add more vulnerabilities over time. But start small. Don't take on more than you can actually work on and that's going to be the way to, to really get started so uh, from my perspective new meals is spot on um, in the mid 2000s i helped a company um, a large financial company they did a, a deep dive on cross-site scripting and you know we looked through two and a half million lines of code found two and a half thousand cross-site scripting uh, vulnerabilities and we helped the developers understand how to resolve it in pretty much every case um, and that, interestingly enough, became the basis of ESAPI, which is an early um, framework. Um, but the reality is, is that from the OWASP top 10 adoption, you can actually look at it from the point of view of, um, you can pick up things like OWASP G-Shop, which is um, a training application that teaches you how to pen test for it. And that can actually then lead to doing bug bounties. You can do bug bounties on your own. Um, but if you're actually doing secure coding, um, there is some work being done in both G-Shop and Security Shepherd um, on how to do secure coding and to resolve vulnerabilities. Um, so the developer skill is, I think, something that we need to concentrate on because every framework is slightly different and actually how to address uh, cross-site scripting in, say, for example, Spring versus uh, Vue, very, very different. 
Um, so we can't just simply say this is how you test for the cross-site scripting in every language. It doesn't work that way. So we do need to do some more work in that way. But I'd encourage developers, once they've learned a little bit about the OS Top 10, look at the application security verification standard. It's actually written for you. Every single item in the ASVS yeah. is testable. And that's extremely important. You write tests for the ASVS and your code is proven correct every single to build. And that's exactly what we need to get to. Love it. Dan, any any final thoughts from you on this? No, I just complete agreement on the ASPF because yeah, if you're doing pen testing, it is just indispensable. So, and and I just wanted to say, well, thank you, Nabil, for always being such a great voice around applicant and common sense about application security and, and, and <laughs> helping to change the world that way. And and Andrew, I, I'm not surprised you get a lot of blowback from the community. I know it's healthy. Uh, it's probably also a little bit exhausting at times. So, thank you for continuing to fight the good fight for all of us. No worries, anytime. Yeah, two two decades at it. Uh, yeah. Incredible. Uh, like you, Nabil, I often point many folks to OWASP, but many, many, many projects taking place there, IoT and all kinds of things, right? But uh, I have many friends that uh, partake in those things, and two here, three here, uh, that I'm very happy to have this conversation with. Uh, there will be links in the show notes obviously the top 10 for 2021 plus other resources the blog that I mentioned that Nabil and Diana both contributed to and uh, any other things that uh, Andrew and Nabil and Diana think would be helpful maybe that uh, the, the testing uh, tool we mentioned uh, Andrew we can point folks to as well so yeah, thanks sure. everybody for uh, helping us to redefine security today on ITSP Magazine and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode alright thank you Thank you. Thank you. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.